Let's turn to the book of Luke once again, the last verses of the the first chapter of Luke. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. We're going to look towards the end there, Luke 167, on your way there. We've got a picture from Kalen, and I think every time I show Kalen's picture, Kalen is gone. He might be watching on Facebook, so hello Kalen and family, and uh, you made it up here. So he caught where we were last week with, with Zachariah, who was mute, deaf, for these whatever, nine months as it were, of the, birth, uh, the pregnancy of his wife Elizabeth, and then John is born. Now, what, what's his name going to be? He writes on the tablet, John, and then his tongue is is loosed. And we're going to look at that loosening of the tongue right here in Luke, at the end of Luke 1 here. So thank you, Kaylin, for that. Maybe you had time to ponder and think on the things of the Lord this week. We're going to ponder again and think on this, this great passage to close out this chapter. So let's read God's Word together, beginning in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray once again. Lord, I just ask for this moment that we get to spend together in your word and to think on it and to study it once again. It is your grace that leads us here, your grace that has led us through this year and our lives up to this point, and your grace, Lord, that will lead us further. And may your grace train us as we hear from your word today. Lord, guide the words that I will speak that your glory would shine, that you would increase, Lord, um, in greatness and glory as we think on you today and on your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. We praise you, Lord, for this. Guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, What we just read before us in these verses, at least verses 68 through 79, They're the first words from a man who could not speak for some nine months or who could not hear as well because of his lack of belief. These are the first words 
that come out. So last week we looked, you know, that, that his tongue was loosed and he spoke blessing God. This is what's filling into that. They're words here of worship. They're words of praise. They're words of remembrance. They're remembering God's merciful covenant of old. They're, they're future words here. And they're words that point to a glorious sunrise. And I was just it's so glad the sun rose this morning. It does every morning by God's grace, but it, we saw it today. Maybe you saw it, depending on which way you drove in, but it rose. There's a greater rising, but all that is in here. And so after these nine months, Zechariah speaks, and when his tongue is loosed, he praises God, and he looks forward to Jesus. Now, before we study the text itself and get into some of this, I want to just go on a little bit of a tangent and break down some of, uh, we're going to look, we're going to look at Zachariah's words here, but uh, you've heard me mention Alfred Edersheim before. He's a, he's a Jewish Christian, Jew, you know, Christ following Jewish commentator. And I find him helpful with things as you look through just the history of the Jewish people. He mentions this in a commentary that, and makes a connection between what Zachariah's words here are and what's called the 18 benedictions. I don't know how many of us have ever heard of the 18 benedictions, and if you, you look, I think there's really 19, but they're called the 18 benedictions. You can look this, you can Google it later, uh, maybe not now, but go ahead if you need to, but they, they comprise their prayers of really the Jewish people, and they date back before the time of Zechariah. What's interesting is that they are still prayed. They're, they're still, they're the morning, they're the afternoon, they're the evening Prayers. I have a copy of, you know, you can look them up, and it's called the, uh, I'm probably not even saying it right, Amidah or the Shemona uh, Esrei or 18 Benedictions. They're prayers, and so I imagine you are with Jewish folks, you would hear these being prayed. And Edersheim is connecting these to the flavor of what Zechariah has written in here. How interesting this is. Here's what uh, Edersheim speaks, and, and he talks about the Zechariah. You know, after nine months, he's been in solitude. Perhaps even this, this 18 benedictions was what they were praying in the temple. Remember, Zechariah was burning the incense and coming back out, and he was supposed to speak the benediction. Some of these, I think, were, were prayers that were to be spoken. Remember, we said he couldn't say anything when he came out, which I'm thinking he, he should have get, you know, given the benediction, and like, like me standing up at the end and just can't speak, and that would be really odd. And so it's making a connection that these same prayers here were potentially, possibly, on Zechariah's mind during his time of silence. And here's what Edersheim says. He says, the first evidence of his dumbness, not that he's, you know, intellect is, is you know, he's mute, can't hear, can't speak, that his tongue refused to speak the benediction to the people. Okay, that was the first evidence And the first evidence of his restored power was that he spoke the benediction of God in a rapturous burst of praise and thanksgiving. Isn't what a connection between Zechariah that came out and could not speak? He's silent the nine months, and now his first words are a benediction. It's I think place it's called the Benedictus, you know, or whatever of of Zechariah here. Now he's speaking and he's praising the Lord. And this benediction and these prayers ultimately find their fulfillment in Messiah, in Jesus Christ. 
So let's just look through them, look through some of this text, beginning just verse 67, where we read his father, Zechariah, whose father? John's father. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now we're going to look at the rest of that. But here is God revealing himself through, via, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, using the mouth of Zechariah. 2 Peter 1.21, I'll just read it to you. Says, remember this about the Spirit. There, Peter says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Zechariah here, again, he's just simply, he's the mouthpiece for what God is wanting to say. And before us, once again, we have God's words. And they're placed right at this point in the narrative by God's design, Right here before Joseph and Mary are going to, we're going to read about them traveling to, uh, to Bethlehem and there's no room in the inn and, and they lay the baby in the manger. These words come right before that. I think that's of divine planning. Well, let's move on and look at the bulk of this passage. It's really going to be 68 through 79. This section, if you look, this section is filled with allusions to the Old Testament. It's all over the place. Uh, One writer has said nearly every phrase here that you're going to read and see is found in the Old Testament. What a a passage here. If you've got a Bible with the little verses in the margins, cross-references, if you have one, just take a minute and look at that. And you'll see, just if you look at all these verses, find 68. Maybe you've got to get some glasses out and find them. But they're small, but it's just Old Testament after Old Testament throughout. Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, uh, Samuel, Jeremiah, Psalm, Micah, Zephaniah. There's just, boom, all these places. And we could go a while just looking up all these that are just brought right here into this uh, text filled with references. So chronologically and in this literary style of Luke here, as inspired by God, Zechariah, he's closing out chapter 1 before Jesus' birth, and he's closing out a how? With a mountain of the Old Testament. I think that's significant. We'll come back to that again as we go. I think what we can see here is that all the Old Testament, all the promises, the prophecies, they're really like unfolding into reality. You know, we read about shadows in the book of Hebrews, shadows of the old reality becoming clear here in this clarity. The shadows are taking form. A, a new age, not new age, a new age is dawning, literally, as we read about the sunrise and the coming of, of John, who's going to prepare the way, and then of the one who is the way. And that's what we see here, right before the birth of Christ. There's two sections within this. The first one, I think, is 68 through 75. And if I could summarize it, I would just say God's people are rescued to worship. That would be a summary of just the 68 through 75, God's people are rescued to worship. Let's look at a few of these places. Let's look at 68 through 70. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. There's the idea of God visiting here a people, and one commentator has this idea of visiting 
is the idea of with a view to help. This, this isn't just a casual you know, visit like, okay. It's a, view, it's a visit with, that God has visited with a view to help, a view to save, because it's a redemptive visit. And there's a salvation that's going to come, and it's going to come from the house of David. And that's why, again, Bethlehem matters in the Christmas story, the city of David. And then, of course, then verse 70 reminds us again, God spoke all these things by the prophets of old. Sometimes we don't travel far in our Bibles. We kind of just stick to our text, and I'll bring in some. We're going to travel a little bit today and go to some places and look up a few, a few of these references that are here. The first one I want you to go to is Psalm 132, Psalm 132, verse 17. We're going to read a little bit more when we get there, if you need to. Mark your spot, but we'll just turn our pages. Uh, find Psalm 132. Find it with you here. And our particular verse we've got in mind is going to be verse 17, but I'll, we'll just read this little section 13 through 18 here. Thinking about this horn, this horn of David here. Look at Psalm 132. Let's start in the verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I've desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame but on him his crown will shine. A horn would sprout, or as Luke puts it, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us from this house of David. And we see that here in Psalm 132. We don't often in our speech, we don't talk about horns a lot these days, like a horn, so we're a little unfamiliar it just This idea of horn is the idea of strength. I will make something strong. It's, it's a way to speak of strength. Like, like the beast you know, won the battle with its horns. And maybe some of you, you're more into hunting and bucks and horns, and there's strength in the horns and that sort of thing. Maybe for some of you, it might be closer to like truck language, four-by-fours, strength. You think, I mean, that's what the commercials are for trucks. It's, it's strong, and we don't need to divide over Rams, Chevys, Fords, that sort of thing. But you, you know some of their slogans? What's, what's Ford? It's built Ford tough. That's, that's like saying a horn is sprouting. Or um, what was the Ram? Yeah, nothing more powerful than a, than a Ram. They're actually, Rams have horns, so they're actually grabbing from the horn. They're actually, there's Old Testament in the Ram, no, that's not a biblical truck, but anyway, you get, you get the idea. It's just this strength, the full truck, it's strong. The idea of horn is his strength. So as the Old Testament gives way to the new, this Redeemer is going to come from the house of David, a sprouting horn, a strong one. Now what happened to David? David, Acts 13 says, he saw corruption. He died. It says, uh, he whom God raised up, but, but then... Acts goes on to say, He whom God raised up did not see corruption. And so through Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. Jesus, this 
line of David who did, and Jesus did not see corruption, raised to life. This is that horn of salvation. All right, let's head back to our text in Luke. You kept your hand there better than I did. Luke, back to one. Now, one more note here before we go on. We'll, we'll get to these other verses here. One just interesting, you look at verse 68. At least I've got lines in it. And it, it says there, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And it's that next line. It says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This, this sounds like a past tense phrase. It, it, it should sound that way. He has visited and he has redeemed. And our question might be, isn't Zechariah, isn't he looking forward to the Messiah? Isn't this a, a future thing? Why is it saying he has visited, he has redeemed? And you could say there's God's visiting in the past, his redemption in the past, but this is the thing. This is this, is this horn being raised up, but it sounds like it's in the past. Interesting note here, but I think what's happening is, and I had to look this up, but there's a proleptic, uh, futuristic verb being used here. You may not get all into verbs, but this is really cool. Because what does this mean? This type of verb used here, uh, one, Bill Mount says, it can describe a future event and emphasize the certainty of the action. I've seen these in the Old Testament. They're called prophetic perfects. But it looks forward, and it's so certain what's going to happen that he has visited and he has redeemed. It's in the past tense because it's so certain it will happen in the future. Now, that's a little hard to get our minds around and understand, but that's what's so neat. God uses, even He uses tenses and all this, this language to show us, oh, He will visit. He will redeem. It's so certain you can talk about it like it's already happened. That's a God visiting and redeeming His people with surety. Okay. All right, let's come back out of the verbs into verse 71 now. I'll just read through a first part of 73 here. Now he spoke by mouth of his holy prophets of old, and then verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. All right, now Abraham is brought up, and actually if you look back at Mary, even Mary's, uh, prayer, song of praise, the Magnificat, verse 54 and 55. She talks about Abraham and, and his remembrance and the same idea. So there's, there's some repetition here as well. But God swore an oath to Abraham to save his people from their enemies. Now there's places where God has set his covenant with Abraham, but let's look in particular at Genesis 22. So save your spot and head to Genesis 22 now. And let's look at this passage of Abraham. So Genesis chapter 22. As we're going to 22, what happened in 22? What happened in chapter 22? We are jumping right into, now we're not going to cover and read the whole account, but this is right after Abraham has fully obeyed the Lord. God's, you know, take, sacrifice your son Isaac as a burnt offering and and Abraham obeyed all the way. And he was, remember, he was just about to. And then the angel, no, restrained. And Abraham did not. And they found the, the ram or whatever in the thicket. 
in the aftermath of that, that's where we're at in Genesis 22 in verse 15. After all that, and Abraham has obeyed, you could say his faith has worked itself. He's shown his faith by his works here. But verse 15, let's look at this in Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And we learn from Luke, it is God's mercy to save. But God says that his people, these, these off, this offspring of Abraham, offspring, I think of his faith, you could say for us, but these people will possess the gate of their enemies. So back to the book of Luke. Here's kind of that enemy language in Genesis. Now Luke, and that's what we see. Saved from enemies, from the hand, remembering this oath sworn to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, and it meant something for future offspring. Nations would be blessed. Enemies would be defeated. But another question might pop up here. What what kind of enemy are we talking about? Are, are these physical enemies? I think to, to a certain extent we could say that, but look at verse, let's keep reading. Verse 73, I, I left off part of it. Let's read that through uh, 75 here. So there's an oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Now let's pick it up in Luke. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Notice verse 75 says how we might serve, and I like the word worship there, interchange, how we might, how do we worship without fear? There's the idea of doing this without fear because it's in holiness and it's in righteousness. Certainly, there were literal physical enemies of Israel. Remember, they came into the land of Canaan and they overtook them and and God was gracious to them. But the greater enemy for them and for us is not other nations. The greater enemy is our own flesh. And it's in this horn of David. It's the, the greater offspring of Abraham, Messiah, Jesus, that were redeemed from slavery to sin. To live now, as Paul says in Romans 6.18, we're, we're not slaves of sin anymore. We're now slaves to righteousness. Remember that, that familiar verse in Romans 6.23. Uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we're delivered. We're delivered from Yes, there's, there's, ev- there's physical wickedness, evil, but from sin. But what are we delivered to? What's the purpose of the deliverance? In our sinful state, we, we're right to fear. I think Brandon prayed about it this morning, to fear the wrath of God. That's, that's good to fear that. And in Christ, we are redeemed so that we might worship without fear. 
I mean, fear, reverent fear, honor the Lord, reverence Him. But there's not a fear of His wrath because of Christ. God's people, we are rescued. But we're rescued for a purpose, and it's the purpose to, as you see in the text, to worship, that we might serve Him without fear. It's not just to kind of brush ourselves off from our sin and go, man, that was, that was a close call. I'm glad, I, glad that's not there anymore. I'll just keep walking, and I hope it gets... We're, we're saved for a purpose, to worship. Rescued to worship, you might say. And so we have that gift from the One, the One who redeems, who has been raised up as a horn, who saves and who shows mercy. We can worship today. We can sing these songs, O Ancient of Days, and we don't have to fear, what's He going to do to me because of the, that horn, that child that, verse, that chapter 2 will say was laid in a manger and what He did. All right, well, that's kind of this first section. Now let's come into just this second section of the benediction, really verse 76 through 79. And this section begins to look forward to John and then as the one going before the sunrise. So let's first look at 76 and 77 here. Zechariah, continuing to be filled and to continue to prophesy, says about his child now, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's, just as we've seen here, John's going to go before Jesus. Prophecy goes before the Lord. Now here I want to head to one more place. We'll actually look a couple places, but the book of Malachi. It's not a, not a far stretch, and I think we've already been there once in our study through John the Baptist. But Malachi chapter 3. We want to look in particularly uh, to verse 1. So here's John. Here's the Father saying, you're going to go before the Lord to prepare His ways. That's what John is going to do. Come back to Malachi this at the end of your Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse uh, 17 of chapter 2 and then just kind of go through, through verse 4 here. But let's look at this section here. Malachi actually meaning messenger. So here's, here's messages to the people. Here's verse 17. Let's start there. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied Him? And the answer, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So these people had wearied the Lord. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Now there's probably more to be understood and looked at. You might have questions as we look at that broad passage. 
But was not John's ministry, as we've seen over and over, a ministry of preparation to prepare? John's going to say later on in the book of Luke, he's going to say to the people, he says, he who is mightier than I, he's coming. John just, he just pointed. He says, he's coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John would bring his own fire you know, in repentance to say, you, who warned you guys to, to flee? And you better show some fruit from your repentance. And he was on fire as well. But there was a greater fire coming and Jesus was coming to, I think, refine his people lest they face the fires of eternal judgment. Okay, you can keep your place in Malachi because we're going to be back there just shortly, but back in Luke, we come back again. And so there's now, you see the Old Testament, here's the new. Here's John preparing the way. Here's this fulfillment. And then verse 77 speaks of this salvation, and it talks here about the forgiveness of their sins, which again, I think, we're looking for you know, this salvation. What about the enemy? Is this physical? Is it spiritual? Is it sin? I think, again, this just helps kind of tie in that idea that, that it's, it's not so much the physical enemy, it's the enemy of sin, the forgiveness of sins. That enemy is going to be dealt with by this one that John would come preparing his way. Look then at these last two verses of this benediction of Zechariah. And, and it says, why? To give knowledge, salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 78. Once again, because of the tender mercy of our God. We saw that last week with Elizabeth. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God is merciful, and in His tender mercy, a sun is going to rise. You could spell it S-U-N, but S-O-N will rise and will come, and it's going to come to a people in darkness. Do you remember that familiar, I think we read it Christmas Eve night from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Now I said we're going back to Malachi, so come back. And in connection, one last place, and it's Malachi chapter 4. So we're thinking of this sunrise visiting us, the light, this, this light kind of language in Malachi 4, uh, chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through Three, let's look at that. It says here, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now I know we're just jumping into Malachi and with prophecy. I think there's, there's, both a, there's, a, there's near fulfillment to these things, but there's also far. I think Piper, John Piper's talked about when you look at a mountain range, sometimes you see the mountains that are just up close, 
And sometimes you see mountains in the distance. A good mountain picture will show you that. Sometimes there's near prophecy and then there's, there's far. And I think that's some of what we're seeing. We're going to see this kingdom, this son of righteousness with healing is coming in the incarnation of Jesus leading to the cross. There's healing in his wings. And one place, maybe it was the ESV Bible here, talked about the rays of sun, like the, the wings, this healing in the wings of this son of righteousness. But finally, the final fulfillment will be when he appears again to judge the earth. Now, John chapter 1 acts like a commentary here. I'm going to just read it. I love when the Bible just kind of, okay, son of righteousness, healing, light, darkness, what's going on? Here's what John says in the beginning of his gospel in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. All right, head back to Luke. I don't think we'll go anywhere else here. You can head back safely, camp out in Luke again. Particular, the last verse here of 79 that I already read. Because it's John who's going to prepare the way of the one who, as verse 79 says, will give light to those who sit, you could say dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death. And he's going to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus himself says, John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. This is just pointing to Christ here. The beauty of it is for us, for those who are in the darkness, lost in sin, fearing the shadow of death here. What does that remind you of, the shadow of death? Psalm 23? How, how can we read Psalm 23 where David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. How can we know God is with us in the valley of the shadow of death? Because the sunrise that John points to was coming and has come. That's how we can dwell in these places of darkness and death. Because we look to the light, the sun. And it's the same shining one that Milt read about in John. I think it's John 14, wasn't it? Peace I leave with you, my peace. I give to you. That's who's coming. Look at verse uh, 80. Last verse of this chapter. Kind of the, just the summary. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. I want you just to note here of how God writes the Bible. Zechariah the father begins this section with prophecy from the Spirit. He's at the beginning. Who's at the end? It's John. John forms the end of this section. Talk about him growing. And and then the narrative's going to leave John. We're going to leave him for a bit for chapter 2. Head to the manger and no room in the inn and Jesus and the shepherds and and heading to the temple and all that and then come back to chapter 3 and there's John again. Now he's older and he's proclaiming. 
One who is mightier is coming after me. And we might ask, why didn't God just, why all of this? Why didn't God just plop some prophet somewhere in the middle of Israel who just before Jesus would come in his adult ministry would just, then he would come in the power of Elijah? And why, why all of this? Why have John born to old parents and the fathers mute and deaf? And why have we looked at all that? Why this whole account? Why all this time even to wait in the wilderness till he would come? Till Jesus would come, till his time would come. There's one simple answer. The simple answer is that's just how God planned it to be. That's just how it is. So it is. That's that's very simplistic, but you could say that. Another answer, though, I think we've got to see this in John. His ministry was, it's, you're not gonna, is anything new to you? It was preparatory for Jesus. And I would propose that we've talked about this, even John's birth prepares us for the birth of Christ. Prepares the way. John's birth prepared the way for the virgin to conceive. And for the father, here's father, Zechariah, in the midst of blessing the Lord for what his son's going to do, he's pointing light, shedding light on the fulfillment, the fulfillment of this mountain of Old Testament in this horn of salvation from David, Jesus Christ. I think in a way, John, and I don't think this is new to me or I've read this, he is a link between the Old Testament and, and the New of Jesus. There's this link going on. J- John, in a way, I mean, just hear this in a way, he's, he's in a sense, he's the embodiment of the Old Testament in, in the sense that his birth, his ministry, just like the Old Testament, prepares the way for this rising uh, sun. John is like the early dawn light. You've been up early. Some of you, often you are up early before the sun rises. And there's that light. That's what John is. It's just, okay, there's light. He's not the sun. The sun's coming behind. And when the sun comes, it, it's bright. So John is that, that early dawn's light. And he's pointing to the Savior that's to come. Light is coming. Salvation is coming. And it's because of this coming Son, the Son of God, that all who put their faith in Him are freed from sin's power and we're delivered now to worship Him. But John's mission also, as we talked about, it goes before the sunrise. He prepares the way. question is, do we know Him who is the light? He's the one that that rescues us from the darkness of sin. If we know Him who rescues us, if we know the light, then what do we do? We shine the light to others, much in in the same way of John. In fact, Jesus says, you know, John, no one greater than John, but whoever's least in the kingdom is greater than John. What does John do? His whole ministry, may you increase, I'm decreasing, point, point, point to Christ. And may that be our resolution, if it were, again, today, Lord, may I point to Christ in the midst of my family, among my brothers and sisters, and in a world that is in darkness to point to Him. Jesus is our light. May He be our message. So may we likewise go like John and preach light to a world in darkness. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for the mountain of your word. There is, it's not just one sentence. It is 66 books full of fulfilled promise and promise that will come over and over and over again. From the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 to the coming of the sunrise to be born of the virgin to live a sinless life and to die on a cross for his own, that his own might believe in him and be saved. This is grace on display. Lord, may we not squander our salvation and simply brush ourselves off and keep living, but may our salvation and our forgiveness lead to worship. And may our salvation and our deliverance and our rescue lead to shining. Help us, Lord, to shine the light. When, we, when you show us darkness, people living in darkness, may we preach Christ by our actions and by our words that we may proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us. We need your help to do this. Lord, I just pray even in this, this time off, in some ways, in between this, this kind of holiday season, that we would be spurred on to know Jesus, know you greater, and to shine your light. Thank you, Lord, for your grace on us. In Jesus' name, amen.